Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Upfront. I'm Derek Beer. Thank you so much for joining us again. Or if this is your first time with us, welcome aboard. I'm so glad you discovered the show. Now, if you play fantasy sports, then you know who Matthew Barry is. But before we dive in, I have to preface the introduction to this episode with a bit of a caveat. Matthew Barry has left ESPN, his longtime base where he led the fantasy sports division. Again, if you play fantasy sports, you know Matthew Barry, and this news is not shocking to you. His statement was posted on Twitter that read, Here is a statement I thought I'd never write. I can confirm that after 15 amazing years, I am leaving ESPN. If you'd like to read the full statement, you can visit his Twitter profile, at Matthew Barry TMR. I mention this because when I read that Matthew was leaving ESPN, my first thought was, Oh no, what do I do with this amazing interview that we just finished? Do I click and drag and throw it in the trash, or do we feature it? In full disclosure, we spoke in late May, and we talked quite a bit about fantasy sports and his life at ESPN. So while this episode was recorded before his ESPN departure, there are references to things that may seem out of time, and lo and behold, we're still going to feature it. Why? Because it's an amazing story of perseverance, hard work, grit, leadership, and so on. All of the things we love to talk about here on Upfront. And there are a lot of great things to learn from this episode. How to keep going when you've been rejected over and over again, what it's like to write for a Hollywood sitcom, and how to make something kind of nerdy into something really trendy and cool. So here it is, my inspiring conversation with Matthew Berry. I hope you enjoy it. Here we are. Matt Berry, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Before we get into you as a person and going way back, um, for those listening, I I just want to ask, explain fantasy sports to people who have no idea what it is. Sure. Happy to. It's a game. I mean, the answer is, is, is really, it's a game, right? And so, um, the, uh, the game is, um, in essence, uh, it's you know the best way to describe it is is that you collect fantasy play you you collect real life athletes for your make believe teams and how well those real life athletes do in their professional games statistically is how well your make believe team does. So the easiest way to sort of uh, give an example of that might be, let's say you draft Tom Brady and I draft Russell Wilson. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then on Sunday, Tom Brady throws three touchdown passes and for the Buccaneers. And so those three touchdown passes count for your fantasy team, for, for you know, Derek's destroyers. And, on, and Russell Wilson throws two touchdown passes for the Broncos. And so for Matthews Marauders, you're in essence beating me three touchdowns to two. And they do that, 
they they do that for um, you know a couple of different um, uh, you know they do that for a bunch of different players. So in foot fantasy football, for example, it would be quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but for fantasy basketball, it's it's centers and guards and forwards, and for baseball, it's shortstop. I mean, you know, it's every position, and so that's what you would do. And and it wouldn't be really three touchdowns to to two. It would be eight points to. I'm sorry, it would be twelve points to eight because you get four points for a touchdown pass. So it it gets you know a little bit. It dials down a little bit, and that's one of the things that we do here at ESPN and other companies do as well. Is that you can play for free online where there's a computer program and an app that keeps track of all your scores. You can just literally, at a glance on your app, see how well I'm doing in my matchup with Derek, for example. But that's the, that's the, the most basic explanation of it, is that it is a way, to, um, it's a way to enjoy sports. It's a way to have a rooting interest in, um, in sports games that you might not care about. And it is a, uh, it is a game that you play where you acquire real-life athletes and how well those athletes do statistically uh, in the real-life games is how well they do for your fantasy team. It's, it is amazing because like, you could be like a Patriots fan, and of course, of course you're going to follow the Patriots and hope they go to the Super Bowl and all that fun stuff. But then if you're involved in fantasy, you're paying attention to almost like the entire league, right? Or at least... Uh, you know, a good number of players from from the league. So I think that's awesome that it, it, it in, in my opinion, or at least what I know about it as well, is that it, it, it gets you involved beyond your team that you like. It gives you, it, correct, it gives you a rooting interest in games that you normally wouldn't care about. To your point, let's say you're a Patriots fan, but Thursday night, it's, you know, it's it's the Jaguars and, you know, call it the, whatever, call it the Jaguars and the Jets. Ooh. Not really a great game, you know. Two game, two teams that have really struggled recently in the NFL, Jaguars, Jets. Where you're like, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm starting, uh, I'm, I'm starting Trevor Lawrence in my game against Tre- uh, again, my game against Derek. And let's say Derek has Brees Hall, the rookie running back for the New York Jets. And now suddenly, we care about this game because yep. I'm sitting there watching, I'm watching that game, and I'm rooting against Brees Hall, and I'm rooting for Trevor Lawrence, and you're doing the opposite, and. All of a sudden, you and I have a huge rooting interest in this game that normally wouldn't wouldn't exist. And the other piece of that I think that's important that gets sort of lost with fantasy is that that connection, right? And I always talk about this that well before you know uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, even like MySpace, fantasy football was the original online community, mm. a way to keep in touch. Like I'm in a league, uh, I'm in a league of of almost uh, of like you know 25 years. That's nothing but my college buddies. And we live all over the country now. We've all been married and, uh, you know, we have kids and jobs and, and everyone has sort of, you know, gone their own way. And some of them I'm still very close to, but some of them, honestly, I would have lost track of if it wasn't for this fantasy league. But thanks to the fantasy league, we all get together. We do the draft, you know, we keep in touch through that. And so it's a way to connect people, whether it's, you know, you know, guys that were in your fraternity or you went to college with, people you work with, your family, all sorts of different ways. It's it's a it's a social aspect. And so I think unlike, say, sports gambling, and I'm a big sports gambling proponent as well, but unlike sports gambling, there's a there's a community uh, aspect to it. Whereas with sports gambling, it's a little bit like I'll take the Patriots and the points. 
Yeah. Okay, great. Now it's just you versus the house. Whereas in the example I just gave, Derek, you and I are in a, let's say you and I are in a league with me and you and a bunch of our old friends that we used to run around Hartford uh, together with. And uh, now all of a sudden I, I not only care because I want Trevor Lawrence to do well and Bryce, Bryce, Bryce Hall to do poorly, but I want to beat Derek. I want to beat my buddy Derek. And, um, and so now that, that's, the, that's the big appeal, I think, of fantasy sports is the talk and the camaraderie that comes with being in a league with your family, your friends, your coworkers, what have you. Awesome. I love that. That whole community connection. It, it's so yeah. important. So, okay. We're going to talk a little bit more about fantasy later on, but this has really set the stage. Um, so let's go back before we get to everything today. Where did, where did you grow up? College Station, Texas. No one's ever heard of it. It's where Texas A&M University is. So okay. We've heard of that. <laughs> yeah, everyone's heard of Texas A&M. My father is a professor to this day at Texas A&M. My mom is actually the former mayor of College Station, Texas. And so uh, I grew up in College Station, Texas, uh, graduated there, wanted to get into broadcasting, uh, knew I wanted to do something. And so I went to, uh, I went to Syracuse University. Mm. In New York, which uh, at the time, you know, I went to my high school guidance counselor and I said, I want to be in communications. I want to be in broadcasting somehow. And that guidance counselor flipped open a book and whatever that year, that book that my guidance counselor had said that the, the Newhouse School of Public Communications was the best broadcasting journalism school yep. in the country. Yeah. And so uh, and it has, it has a lot of very famous alumni including Ted Koppel and Bob Costas and Mike Tirico and, and so on, many, many others. And, uh, you know, Marv Alpert, the, the, the legend. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I went there. What year, did, what year did you graduate from undergrad? Nin 1992. So I'm old. Okay. So um, uh, maybe you know the name. He, he, was, he was a football player at my high school. I went to Torrington High School here in Connecticut. Sure. And Scott... Scott Langheim went to Syracuse University to play football. Um, I would say it was like 91. The name I, sounds familiar. I don't know him personally, but the name sounds familiar. Yeah, okay. It just sticks in my head because just a quick side story. I had the biggest crush on the new girl at school who moved there, and we became fast friends. But then uh, he was dating her, so he came to my house to pick her up one time, and I just felt like a big fat loser. So... <laughs> <laughs> You know, the star football players come in to pick up the girl I like. But anyways, um, so, we've okay. All, we've all been there. We've, we've all, all been all, there. We've all been there. Yeah, yeah. So, what, you know, what was life like growing up in, uh, in, in, in that town in Texas? You know, was it, I mean, I imagine, I picture, I picture Friday Night Lights or whatever that movie is because, you know, high school football is almost like pro football down there. But what was life like for you down there? Uh, it was okay. You know, I was a Nebuchadnezzar, Jew, a, a sensitive Jewish kid. Uh, I was a good athlete, but I was a, I was an athlete, uh, in tennis, which is a singular sport. Yep. And so, um, so I had a very good core group of friends, but I definitely, you know, I've, I've, I've written about this. I've been public about this. You know, I was definitely bullied. I definitely just didn't really feel fit. I didn't really feel like I ever fit in. Mm. I didn't really ever feel like I fit in, uh, uh, you know, with, um, 
with you know some of the some of the kids there you know that was kind of it was football loving texas it was just very it is yeah very friday night lights and so you know like this you know kind of sensitive jewish kid didn't didn't exactly sensitive jewish kid in the late 80s mm. didn't necessarily um uh mesh with all of you know down home you know country country music loving football playing football obsessed texas yeah south central, south central texas and so um but look you know there's a couple things that i would say you know what doesn't kill you make you makes you stronger and i started my love of fantasy sports when i was 14 again sort of being a uh, being a kid that uh you know didn't mind being alone that like you know again being sensitive i like to read a lot i still do mm-hmm. i like doing research i like crunching numbers you know um all the things that you know didn't impress the didn't impress the ladies you know when you're 15 but made me uh made me what I am today and a lot of those skills that I honed in high school um and and playing fantasy sports are what ended up you know obviously helped me out as I started my career so when when you were a kid in Texas I mean you went on to Syracuse for communications but like yeah. Before that, what was your? Did you have any childhood aspirations? Like, what what did you want to be when you grew up, so to speak? I wanted to be a radio DJ of all things. So, I mean, I, I've had a really, you know, it's weird. I don't want to make it seem like I was, you know, some total loser in high school because I definitely wasn't. I, I definitely had a core group of friends. I was I was the number one player on my tennis team. I was in I was in drama, um, which was uh, you know in the drama class, and you know we we did well in state competitions and I enjoyed that. I had a good group of friends there. And I also had a cool job for, for the high school, which is when I was 14 years old, I wanted to be a radio DJ. Nice. I just became, I became really into radio. Uh, I went to a summer camp, like after I was this summer before my freshman year of high school. And this camp had like a souped up two watt AM radio station. And I did that all summer and I really enjoyed that. And so I came back to College Station. I started going around to every, you know, back then they used to have these things called remotes and where the radio station would be like, I'm at, you know, I'm at the car wash on you know the corner of Fifth and Main and come by. We're giving out bumper stickers and koozies for the next two hours, you know, <laughs> yep, yep. To, you know, and they would broadcast live from these locations to try to drive people to that business. And I would show up to all of them. And uh, and, you know, I'm sure at first the, the DJs thought like I was this weird stalker kid. And I probably was on some level, but they quickly realized that I was just kind of a, um, I was harmless and nice and I was helpful. I'm like, you need me to pass out bumper stickers? Are you guys hungry? I'll go get you some lunch, whatever, you know? And so I sort of became a little bit of a mascot, if, for lack of a better phrase. Like they, they, all the DJs started to like me and then they invite me by the station. Like, you want to come by, see, what, see me do the show and um, maybe answer phones. And I just sort of started working my way in. When I was 15 years old, I got a job like answering phones and and running tape for a local radio station. And eventually they let me on the air, like doing the midnight to 6 a.m. shift on the weekends. And, you know, parents were as long as your grades stay up, you can do it. And it eventually led to the final my senior year of high school. Uh, I got a job from seven to midnight, Monday through Friday, 7 p.m. to midnight. As the uh, the nighttime DJ. For the classic rock radio station in our town. That's a great so, slot. <laughs> yeah, Monday through Friday, seven to midnight. Matthew Rock and Rollberry was uh, spinning the tunes in Bryan College Station, Texas, for KTAM Radio. And uh, I am insanely proud, prouder than I probably should be, Derek. That's awesome. Like, I was like seventeen years old, and like, what are you going to do? And like, you know, whatever. 
you're playing, you know, music that's older than you are and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, there was definitely some doubters at the radio station, but I had a program director, Roger W. Garrett, who believed in me. And uh, anyway, at the end of that senior year, and my parents were like, you know, are you sure you want to, you're going to come home at like 1230 and then get up and go to high school the next day. And you're going to do this every day of your high school, your senior year of high school. I'm like, yes, I want to do this. And so they were like, okay, as long as you're grade step, you can do it. And so I did it. And uh, at the end of that year, in the men 25 to 54 category, which was our demographic for classic rock radio, I had the number one show in the town. So uh, I, I am, uh, whatever, 30 years later, still insanely proud of that particular dumb fact. They, they must have missed you when, you when you went off to Syracuse. They did. Yeah. They did. They tried to keep me. I bet. Now, when you went to uh, Syracuse, did you did you continue? I mean, you, you wanted to go for communications broadcast. So you did you end up on any local stations there or, you know, what? It, how would you sum up your collegiate experience? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I try to do everything right. I mean, so it, being a robust communication school like it is in Syracuse, there's a lot for a student to do. Mm. And so I I was a DJ at um, at Z89 radio, that, which is a college radio station. But it's a but at Syracuse, like it's a real radio station. It's not a typical college radio station that plays like kind of alternative music and whatever. It was, it was actually a top forty station that was rated in the market, um, fifty thousand watt uh, station that um, had real production and you know was had ads and like I mean they you know they ran it like a real real radio station. And so I did the morning show on uh, on Z eighty nine. Uh, I did a bunch of stuff with a student TV station, which at the time was called UUTV. It's now called uh, Citrus Hill Television. So I produced a, I actually produced a sitcom and uh, acted a little bit in it, um, where we did like twenty half hour episodes over two years. And I wrote a humor a humor column for the local uh, for the student newspaper, the Daily Orange. Nice. So I just sort of dove into all these things. Really started exploring my uh, my writing and. Honestly, it was at Syracuse that I fell in love with television and uh, and working at that student TV station. I really, really found myself enjoying uh, TV and I enjoyed the writing process of writing the column. And so, uh, you know, made some lifelong friends at, at Syracuse, really had a, a great time there, really fond memories. And from Syracuse, I moved out to Hollywood and my goal was to be a a sitcom and movie writer to write for television and movies, specifically, you know, comedy movies and, and sitcoms. And so uh, that was what I did when I graduated college was I moved out to L.A. and tried to pursue that. Yeah, no, we're definitely going to talk about that because, um, you know, you, it's like the dream job. You get out of college, you, you know, head to uh, La La Land or Hollywood. Right. And you were sure. you were writing um, you were a writer with married married with children. So. Yes. How long was that? How long did you do that? Uh, I did that for one year. Okay. So I did that. I did that for. Um, I did that for uh, uh, for one year. So I moved out to Hollywood, and I mean we can we can dive more into college if you want. But really, when I moved out to Hollywood with a, a group of kids that I'd done all these student TV station projects with, and I got a job as a production assistant, which is basically a gopher. Yep. I answered phones, I got lunch, I delivered scripts, you know, picked up lawn, uh, picked up laundry, like whatever was needed by, by the stars and the executive producers of the shows. 
And so I've had a really weird career, Derek, and um, a blessed one. And so one of my first jobs out of college was I was a production assistant for Stage 17 on the Warner Brothers lot of the first season of The George Carlin Show, which was a sitcom for Fox. Yeah. In essence, what that meant was I became George Carlin's assistant. So I did that for a year. And uh, I did that for a year, and that was amazing working for George. Um, Loved the man. Really a wonderful human being. I did another year. I was a production assistant on another sitcom. I did that. And then I was able to get into something called the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop, which uh, was a you know, program designed to uh, help elevate uh, you know, young writers. Mm. You know, I, I'd been write, my writing partner, the guy that I did the TV sitcom with in college, a guy named Eric Abrams. Eric and I moved out to Hollywood together to pursue a, a writing career. We did that. Um, we both worked, you know, kind of these odd jobs. And then we got into the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. And uh, uh, through that, we were, we, were able, we were placed on a sitcom called Kirk, starring former teen heartthrob Kirk Cameron, um, who uh, was on a network that no longer exists called the WB. Yeah, I remember um, that. And, yeah, and the WB is, is now part of the CW. It was in, merged with another network to become what is now known as the CW. But... Uh, we did that for a year, and out of that, after we wrote on Kirk, which was this really super family-friendly show, and the year we wrote on it, uh, the parents' council, the parents' television council voted Kirk the most family-friendly, safest show to watch with your family. And uh, after that, we went from Kirk to the show that the parents' television council declared the most awful to watch with your family, <laughs> the least family-friendly, Married with Children. <laughs> So you you got the full gamut there, one end to the other. Gamut. Oh um, man, family friendly to uh, not so family friendly. Yeah. Uh, to um, and so we went and wrote on Married with Children, and so uh, I spent one year on the show as a story editor. I wrote, I personally wrote five episodes of the show, but I worked on twenty eight episodes of the show, and you know I have I have jokes and moments and beats in, in twenty eight different episodes of the shows. Amazing, love it. Um, I love it. I'm uh, I'm the answer to a weird trivia question, two weird obscure trivia questions regarding Married with Children, which is one, I uh, I wrote the 250th episode of the show, uh, and I actually wrote the last original episode to ever air of Married with Children. I'm going to have to remember that whenever uh, that comes up. So I'll say, I know the answer to this. <laughs> I have inside information. told me a little bit about your parents but i one question i always ask of everyone that that joins the show here is what kind of values did your parents instill in you that you still carry with you today that's a great question um i have to think about that um uh you know what i would say kindness is probably the most important one mm. um the importance of being kind um, you know, the, uh, the importance of, you know, helping those less fortunate, um, my parents have always, I mean, again, my, uh, you know, my, my mother, uh, is on the board of directors of United Way. Um, my parents have donated a tremendous amount. They're, they're fellows at the, at Texas a University. They've, they've raised a tremendous amount of money and donated a, a good portion of their, uh, personal wealth to uh, to local charities 
in and around Texas, things that are important to them. Mm-hmm. They've helped people out that were um, uh, that were less fortunate. I'll, I'll never forget. Here's a story that I've never told anyone before. I had a friend growing up, buddy of mine that played on the tennis team, and blunt way to say it is like he didn't come from a lot of money. He just um, uh, dad dad wasn't really in the picture. Mom worked, but mom worked minimum wage jobs. He had a couple of brothers. He just didn't come from a lot of money. And um, his mom didn't have insurance and he needed a, uh, a medical procedure and he needed money for the medical procedure. Mm. And he came to my parents, didn't tell me that he was doing it. He came to my parents and said, this is the medical pr- procedure I need. Um, I can't afford it. My mom can't afford it. Can you help? And my parents said, yes. And they wrote the check and he got the medical procedure and it got all done. And I didn't find out about this until about a decade later. My wow. parents never mentioned it to me. Wow. And I was just like, I can't believe you didn't tell me that, you know. And they're like, well, it was his story to tell. It's not our story to tell. You know, somebody that, somebody, somebody that was in need that we knew came to us and asked for our help. And we were in a position to be able to help. And so we helped because that's what you should do. That's amazing. And so... So they did that, and that's um, sort of a you know very indicative story of my parents that um, that they do that, and they don't they don't really look for credit for that. And so I think in terms of what my parents have instilled in me, I think it's you know trying to be good people and trying to trying to leave the world a better place. And when you can, when you if you have the opportunity and the ability to do the right thing, you should. Yeah. No, and absolutely. not for any other reason other than you should. Yep. It's the right thing to do. Uh, and so uh, to me, that's the, that's the biggest thing. There's, you know, other things in terms of, you know, uh, the, other, the other big thing I would say uh, from both of them, really, especially my father, but both of them, is my work ethic. You know, it's very rare for me to see, you know, my dad always worked and, you know, obviously took time for family, but... Um, he, his work ethic was off the charts, his ambition and work ethic off the charts. And, um, you know, we'd have dinner and then he'd, you know, he'd, he'd work late in the night. And then, and so, uh, I don't think I'm where I am today without my focus, uh, you know, my ambition, obviously, and my work ethic. And that all comes from my father and, and my mother actually as well. I mean, my mother is, my mother works her ass off. They both do. There you go. Very good lessons to take for sure. Okay, so you you as a person, we want to learn a little bit more about you, the choices, the things that you do that make you who you are. Um, take us through your daily routine. Are you an early morning person? Are you best late in the day? What's what's a day in the life of Matt Berry like? Yeah, I mean, it depends on whether I'm in season or not. And by in season, I mean, whether it's the NFL season, what I primarily do these days, obviously, is fantasy football for ESPN. In the off season now, when we're talking, there's still some stuff, there's some still work to be done. But I spend the off season trying to spend time with my kids and my wife, my family. Um, I have a couple side hustles that I like working on um, that are sort of my hobbies. So I do that. I do some stuff for ESPN. But really, you know, August 1st until the end of football season, I am seven days a week all in uh, uh, at work. And so, that, uh, so it sort of depends on in season or out of season. In season, um, uh, in season, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up fairly early and, you know, working until, until the day is done. But out of season, I prefer to, I sleep in and I'm, I'm much more of a night owl. I like the, um, uh, I, I feel more creative at night. I, I like being at night. Having said that, I don't sleep in too much. You know, I mean, like, you know, I drive my kids to school a couple of times a week. Sometimes they do the bus as well, but they like it when I drive them to school. So I, I get up to drive them to school. My wife will get up a half hour before I will to, to make them breakfast or whatever. Um, kids don't like how I make breakfast. So um, they like me driving and they like her making breakfast. So we have young daughters that are 10. And so, uh, um, so there you go. So, nice. But like, yeah. as far as like a special morning routine, you know, like people like Tony Robbins, like, or whoever take like these, you know, ice cold showers or whatever it is. No, Anything, no, nothing no, crazy, no, huh? No. Okay. Um, where do you, where, what, you know, cause you're, you're part of a big network ESPN, but you've got a team with you on the show and stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I guess as, as an individual, what would you say that your leadership style is like? What's my leadership style like? Yeah. Um, well, I should be clear here that I don't, I don't have anyone that reports to me here at ESPN. I'm, I'm what's considered a talent, which is a, a front-facing personality for the company. By front-facing, I mean somebody that interacts with the public, that the public sees. Got and it. So when the, when the public turns on ESPN, they'll see me on TV or they'll see you know other personalities with the company. They won't see our producers, our directors, our writers, you know, a lot of other people. And so um, having said that, there have been times that I'm in charge. I am in charge of, like I said, some of my startups and that kind of stuff. And my leadership style for those things is really to, to try to find good people and then get out of their way. Mm. And uh, let, them, let them sort of, uh, you know, take the reins and, you know, not try to micromanage or anything like that. Be supportive. Yeah. Uh, let them know that I'm there. Tell them what's expected of them. Uh, let them know when they've failed to meet those expectations, but also let them know when they've exceeded them. I think it's important to not just be you know negative, but also to be positive and encouraging, and uh, and to understand that everyone's human. They were going to you know that everyone's going to screw up. Yeah. So, so that my leader, but my leadership style is is, is to is both to let people. Uh, Hire good people and then let the, let them do the job you hired them to do, and then finally also lead by example. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to ask anyone to do something that I won't that I wouldn't do myself. Yeah, or that but, I haven't done myself. Yeah, I always tell my interns that that you know, hey, I make copies too. So if I need something copied, I'm not just doing it to make you do the copies for making copies sake. <laughs> it's something I actually do too. No, but that's, that, that's great advice. Um, up to this day, right? It, whether, you know, throughout your career, whether it's at ESPN or in your other um, side hustles, startups, things like that, what would you say you're most proud of? That's a good question. What is, what am I, uh, what am I most, what am I most proud of? Yeah. Um, I think the thing that I am most proud of, I mean, there, I mean, there's a lot of things, right? I mean, like, I think I've been hard to narrow down just one. So I'll give you a couple. Um, I think overall, I've I've handled myself and my business the right way. I've been a I've been a good person, a good teammate. Um, I've uh, I promoted other people. Uh, 
both, you know, actually giving them better jobs at times when I've had that opportunity to do so. But I've also been big about, you know, I have a lot of followers on Twitter. And so amplifying people with, that have smaller followings than I do to, to give them recognition, talking internally about, hey, this person did a good job. Hey, I'll get credit for something. I'll say, well, you know, truthfully, it was all this other person. Um, there are a number of people in the fantasy sports industry who would tell you they owe their career to me. What I have, in addition to helping other people get jobs here at ESPN, I've helped a number of people get their jobs elsewhere. The, um, you know, the the you know the main person at Yahoo. You know, I I had a before I went to ESPN, I started a blog. As we're jumping around all over, but you know, while I was in Hollywood, I started a blog. Um, the blog ended up getting popular, and then ESPN ended up buying buying, buying the blog, which is how I wound up here at the company. Hmm. But a lot of the people that I hired initially for the blog um, now work full time. So, like the main guy at Yahoo started with me at my blog. Um, the person that runs fan, runs fantasy content here at ESPN started with me on the blog. Um, the person that runs fantasy for the Athletic started with me on the blog. Um, you know, so there's a number of there's a number of people. Uh, you know, the lead NFL writer for CBSSports.com started with me on the blog as a fantasy football writer. So there have been a number of people that have uh, sort of that have gotten their start with me. Uh, and so I'm very proud of that. Uh, and I think probably the last thing just on a, you know, obviously, you know, at a macro level, you know, when I started, fantasy football was considered this very niche, nerdy uh, kind of thing. And I think what I'm credited for and uh, with quite a bit is, you know, I help popularize, modernize, and uh, mainstream fantasy football. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it, you've taken something, you know, that was seen kind of like as this backroom, nerdy, geeky thing. I think of this, I, I think about the scene in um, uh, Knocked Up, the movie, right? Where Paul Rudd is meeting with his buddies and they, there are all these like married guys yeah. hiding out in a back room and they've got their draft picks and they're, you know, it was like a kind of a dirty secret. He didn't want to tell his wife that he was doing this because, you know, for whatever. But you have, I think, yeah, spot on. You've taken something, you know, you've made it, you know, cool is like lack of a better word, but you've popularized it. Yeah, you know, when I got to ESPN, one of the things I said, we, we the, the internal discussion at the time that I got to ESPN was Yahoo was number one um, in, in fantasy football, and ESPN was a distant third. And so the in, the internal conversation was how do we how do we steal customers from Yahoo? Yeah. How do we how do we you know win that win that battle? And what I said to them then was I said, you know. Instead of doing that, I said, because fantasy players are loyal. And, you know, when, once you have your league set up at a place, it's hard to get, you know, 10 people, 12 people, however many are in your league, to switch websites. You know, everyone sort of just kind of like, fantasy players are really creatures of habit. And I said, instead of doing that, instead of trying to, you know, we'll, we'll offer, you know, we should do promotions around why we believe our product is better than Yahoo's and, and CBS's, which was number two at the time. I said, instead, of, we could do that, and we will, and we should, um, and, and try to convince people to, to come over. But I said, you know, I think our advantage here is that we have every sports fan in the world. Mm. If you are a fan of sports, 
one way or the other, you interact with ESPN. You can't avoid it. You know, there's too many games, too many, too many things that are only on ESPN. You know, whether you whether you like ESPN or not, if you want to watch the Monday Night Football game, you're watching it on ESPN. Yep. You know, um, you want to watch some of the, you know, the NBA playoffs, the, you know, the uh, the college football final, right? You know, there's just a lot of, at some point, you're going to interact with ESPN. And I said, so aren't we better off, instead of trying to steal, you know, Yahoo's customer base, why don't we just, you know, instead of stealing some of their part of the pie, let's just grow the pie. Let's just, let's try to, instead of stealing the fantasy players that exist on another platform, let's try to make uh, every sports player, any, every person that's already a sports fan, and convince them to become a fantasy player. Yeah. You've got the this eyeballs, the, right? You yeah, the- this is the... This was the present, right, Derek? This is the presentation I made internally. And I said, I said, what we need to do is, and the way to do that, the way to get sports fans to become a fantasy uh, player is we need to change the narrative. And, and, you know, whatever, you're a marketing guy, you're a PR guy, you get this. We got to change the narrative around fantasy sports because at the time it was considered this nerdy niche sort of thing. Yep. And I said, what we need to do is we need to make it, you know, and this is going to come off across as sexist, but this is like 2007 when I joined ESPN. And so now, we, we, you know, it's much more inclusive. But at the time, I said, let's just make it something guys do. Because the majority of ESPN's audience, and it's much better now than it was in 2007, but at the time in 2007, the majority of our audience was male. And so I said, um, uh, I said, Let's just try to make it something that guys do. You know what do guys do? They you know they they go to they go to they go to Vegas and they like pizza and beer and they go to the bar you know and get wings and they they like superhero movies and they like fast cars you know and they they fill out a bracket uh, you know for March Madness and oh by the way they they draft a fantasy team. It's just something guys do. Yeah, we need we need to just make it something guys do and we need to have everyone like I'll come on and talk about fantasy football. But they expect me to do that. I said, we need sports center anchors. And so we got all the sports center anchors in a fantasy league. So they cared about it. And so then as they were starting doing highlights, they would mention, oh, this guy's on my fantasy team or scoring some fantasy points. Like, we got to get the people that are calling Monday Night Football to talk about fantasy. Like, just, we need the radio hosts that are on ESPN Radio to talk about fantasy. We need everyone to, like, sort of just talk about it and talk about it in a casual, conversational way, um, you know, that it's something they do. It's not just something I do. It's not just something the nerds over here in the corner do. It's something we all do. It's just a thing that guys do. And slowly but surely, that's what ended up happening. And now it's not just guys, but it's men, it's women, it's grandmas, it's kids, it's everyone under the sun that plays. But we turn the tide. And so I really love the charge to do that both internally at ESPN and externally to the public uh, on TV and in radio and, and digitally. And so... Uh, we eventually turned the tide, and last year, you know, more people played fantasy. ESPN's now the number one fantasy platform in the world, and more people played fantasy on ESPN last year than have ever played on any platform ever in the history of the country. So um, it was a record year for uh, for the industry and specifically for ESPN last year. And so it's been uh, it's been a long ride, but a fun and good ride. And so that's something I'm very proud of. Uh, and the last thing I'll just say real quickly: you're probably getting a lot more answers than you wanted but no it's all good it is my uh is my book fantasy life yes um, i wanted to write a book 
and uh, I went around and I, I went to, uh, you know, I had some calls with publishers and a couple of book agents. And what they all said to me is they said, they said, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that most women buy books. The book buying audience is much more female than male. And your audience is more, much more male than female. And then, but I have an agent that believed in me, great agent, shout out to the great Richard Abate. And uh, he said, I, I believe in you. And so we went to a bunch of uh, publishers and some publishers were like, yeah, we think, I'll never forget this one publisher who said, we don't think he really has an audience. We know he's got a really <laughs> popular column on ESPN, et cetera, et cetera. But we think the reason they, they read him on ESPN is to give him, is for fantasy advice. You know, and uh, and we think they, you know, and, and it's free. And so the book that I wanted to do was because I, knowing that it was a female, that you know, my pitch for the book was I want to write a fantasy football book that I can talk about on the View. I want to write a fantasy football book that's inclusive of everyone. Yeah. That you don't actually need to play fantasy football to enjoy the book, and so broaden the audience. And they said, you know, these some of these publishers were like, ah. Um, we think your audience is only likes you because you tell them how to win. And so if you're going to write a book with no fantasy football advice in it, no one's going to care. And more importantly, they like your fantasy football advice because it's free on ESPN.com, the biggest sports media website in the world. But for them to walk into a bookstore and plunk down 25 bucks for a book, a hardcover book of yours that contains no actual fantasy football advice, we don't think anyone's going to buy that. Mm. And you couldn't even do a you couldn't even do a book with fantasy football advice if you wanted to, because the game changes so quickly that by the time it got published, it'd be out of date. Mm. But I found a couple of people that were that were believers, including Riverhead, which is an imprint of Penguin Books. They believed in it. They liked the pitch. They believed in it. I, I as a writer, um, Disney's imprint did not want to do the book. Like I, you know, I went. To, Hyperion, which is owned by Disney. Yep. And I said, guys, you want to do the book? I'm, you know, I'm homegrown talent. And they were like, nope. So I went out on my own and uh, I did the book with, with Penguin, which again, with Riverhead, which is an imprint of Penguin. And uh, I wrote the book in 2013. It's called Fantasy Life. And Derek, it doesn't have one shred of fantasy advice in it. Not one piece of fantasy football advice. It's the story of my life. And it's the story, and it's also just a bunch of things that are funny about fantasy football, about you know rules and traditions and community and like the crazy league punishments, um, which is now a big thing. But back in 2013, it wasn't. And I wrote a bunch about uh, those, um, and uh, so I did all that. And uh, when it debuted, it debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list, and spent many months on the list. Um, awesome, and so. You know, after being, and it took me two years of just me sitting in a room by myself writing it. And uh, so that's, you know, one thing that I'm also really, really proud of is just after I was told by so many people that no one would buy the book and that I, they only liked me because of the advice. Yeah. The fact that I was able to write, write a book with not any fantasy football advice. And oh, yeah, by the way, the price tag was $26. And, uh, you know, it was a New York Times bestseller for many months, including number debuting at number five. And, you know, that, uh, you know, I I'm, love, a New York, I'm a New York Times bestselling author, and uh, you know, 
I love that story because, you know, whether you're in business or you want to start a business or a, a job, whatever it is, you know, so many people, not, first of all, it's hard to talk yourself into doing something and believing in yourself, right? But then when you get shot down from people, you know, saying, no, this isn't good. It's not going to work. You know, they kind of play to that. We all have that voice in our head like, gee, maybe they're right. I'm not I'm not so sure. But when you can be truly believe in an idea and then make it happen, it's just that's just amazing and such a satisfying feeling. So kudos to you for for plowing through all that, uh, all those rejections. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. OK, so on the flip side of all of that, you know, these these incredible successes, what is your favorite failure? And it's a you know, strange question. So what I mean by that is, I mean, something you, you thought you were so sure of, but it didn't quite work out. It failed. And that's okay. But what was the lesson learned from that? Oh, that's a great question. And there are plenty of failures. I'm just trying to think of like what, uh, I mean, like, you know, it depends. They're small and large, right? I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, again, we went to like, 15 publishers with fantasy life and we got rejected by over half of them you know um so that's one but i kept persevering right i mean uh probably uh you know one of my biggest things is to you know sort of i guess stick to my guns i mean you know another failure i mean here's one i guess um is my column you know i write a column called love hate Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very, very popular. And, uh, you know, the preseason version of love, hate this past year on ESPN.com did about 1.5 million views About 1.5 million people read it this past year. And it's always like the highest rated column on ESPN.com. I'm very blessed. And, uh, my columns are always for those that have never read me, my column, when I started out in fantasy football analysis, it was very dry, a lot of stats, a lot of analytics why you should like this player or not like that player. And I I felt that it was sort of boring. And I wanted to bring some personality to it. And so, you know, I always say this is that I, I feel like the, you know, listen, I'm pretty good with stats, but I'm not I'm not Nate Silver, right? And I'm pretty good with X's and O's, but I'm not like an X, you know, I'm not Tony Romo, right? That can, you know, predict a play before it happens. And, uh, you know, I have a bunch of contacts inside the NFL, but I'm not Adam Schefter. I don't have every single coach and general manager in my cell phone. But what I am really good at, better than anyone in the world, Derek, because I was trying to figure out what's my advantage. What I am better at than anyone in the world is talking about myself. And so I decided to lean into that. And so every column I've written, and I've written it once a week for over 20 years, uh, every column I write is always starts out with a story about me. Mm. about my life, about my kids, about my wife, about something that happened in my past, about, you know, something that, uh, about a league that I found, about, you know, something that intersects somehow in fantasy football or a lesson. And, you know, they're long, it's 1,500, 2,000 words, something like that, maybe sometimes 2,500. And when I started, people were like, no one cares about you. It's myopic. It's, it's you know, navel-gazing. It's like, who cares? Just get to the advice. Tell us who to start. Tell us who to sit. No one cares. And I started with this website called Roto World. Yeah. Roto World at the time had a distribution deal with FoxSports.com. 
that was a big deal. So Roto World was just starting out. Roto World is now owned by NBC. But at the time, Roto World was an independent site. It's where I started. And they, they had this distribution deal where all the Roto World columns would run on FoxSports.com. And so that was a big deal. And the only column, so there was probably like 15 columns that Roto World would send over every week. And the only column that FoxSports.com would refuse to run was mine. Because they said um, they uh, they said it was, you know, it was, it was it, no one cared about me. That it was just too inside and blah, 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 blah. And no one, you know, just get to the advice. Mm. But I will say credit to my, my bosses at Roto World who said, no, stick with it. And, uh, and so I kept doing that. And it easily would have been easily, I was just starting out of my career, and it would have been easy for me to doubt myself or try to like, hey, you know what, maybe I should try to just focus more on the starts and sits and try to go more into the analytics or more into the X's and O's and that kind of stuff. And I just sort of stuck to my guns. I said, this is, I think this is funny. I think this is interesting. I think people will get to know me and care about me. And so again, it's taken 20, you know, it's taken a long time, but like people feel like they know me. And so I think it's one of the reasons why a book with literally no fantasy football advice debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list. A book that was entirely about me debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list and why 1.5 million people read my preseason column uh, this past year, Derek, which was 3,000 words before I ever got to a player. Wow. It was all about my late great Aunt Cookie. And what she meant to me, she'd just passed away. And um, so I wrote about her and what she meant to me and the life lessons she imparted on me. And, uh, and so, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, lesson, I guess, from failure, if you will, is that like, I got rejected early in my career by foxsports.com and I just sort of stuck to my guns. And ultimately that has been my greatest success because the column has done well for me. As I just mentioned, it's, it was the catalyst for the you know, professional moment that I'm most proud of. And I have to tell you that when people recognize me in the streets and they come up and they want a picture, they want to autograph, whatever it is, they never say to me, they never say to me like, hey, thanks for Jalen Hurts last year. What a great call. Thanks for ranking Austin Eckler so high last year. He won me my league. They never say stuff like that. They always say, I love the column about your daughter breaking her arms, or I love the column about meeting your wife, or the bullying column, or your column about the heart attack or the column about your father-in-law. It's always, it's always a personal story of mine that touched them in some way. And it's always different. It's never, you know, there's definitely ones that come up more often than not, yep. but it's always, you know, there's every single story I get responses from that this meant something to me in a big way. And here's why. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's, I believe, cause my advice is good. I think, I think my advice is very good. But there's a lot of people that give good advice. Yeah. I think what has separated me from a lot of other people is uh, I think people feel like they know me. Well, that's just and that's what makes great leaders. Right. This all kind of comes back full circle is empathy. Right. And and make and, and you know, there's a human there. Right. It's not just yeah. it's not just some on your talent that shows up or whatever. When you bring your life and the personal aspect to it, it just makes it all that much more real. going way back in time if you were to meet your 18 or 21 year old self what kind of advice would you give him 
Don't sweat. Don't don't sweat the small shit. That's what I would tell him. Like don't. it just it's don't sweat the small stuff. It's just you know the truth is is like it just um, everything happens for a reason and I won't always see it. And sometimes like again some of the the you know the biggest failures turn out to you know some of the some of the things that just crushed me at the time have wound up being the best things in the world for me. So that's what I would t I would tell myself, you know, and, and also, by the way, just to have more confidence in myself, not to beat myself up so much. Yeah. I'm too hard on myself. Yeah, we all are. Right. We're always I always say that we're often our <laughs> we're always like our worst critic. But um, that that is some great advice. Guy Raz, who hosts a show on NPR, hopefully I don't get sued, but because I'm, uh, I'm stealing his question, he, he he has a great question that he always asks his guests, and I think it's it's amazing. So I'm asking you, um, how much of your success has been pure luck, and how much is it from your, you know, intelligence and brilliance? I'm a big believer in that you make your own luck. I've definitely had some lucky breaks. There's no question some right place, right time kind of things. But I would, I would argue, I think 90% of my success is me creating, creating opportunities so that, you know, putting myself in position so that when those lucky moments happen, I was able to take advantage. Cause I worked my ass off. I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast about like, you know, it's just like, wow, you got lucky that ESPN, uh, you know, bought your website. This is very true. But I spent two years trying to get ESPN to do that. I spent, you know, every single night building up that website, writing for free, going to other places saying like, hey, I'll come on your air for free. I'll write for your website for free. I'll, you know, go on your TV show for free. Just mention my website. Just link back to my website. I spent, you know, I made no money on my website until we sold it to ESPN. I didn't take one dime. Every single thing I made on the website went back into the website, went back into trying to promote it. And, um, you know. Uh, so, and so that when ESPN came knocking and saying, Hey, we're looking for a fantasy football guy. I had, I had a demo reel already. Here's all the hits that I've already done on TV and radio. Here's, you know, and by the way, here's my website and here's the numbers behind it and everything like that. And, um, you know, by the way, and it took me two years to work my way into ESPN to get that meeting so that when they decided to finally look for a fantasy football person, I was on the list for them to call. Yeah. Now, I'm glad you explained that because so many people just see what they see today and they're like, oh, man, you're so lucky you're, you're, you're there. But they don't look at it's like, you know, I hate to use the analogy of like an iceberg or or, or you know, something like that. It's, you see the success is right at the tip. But once you go right under the surface of the ocean, man, there's a whole lot of, you know, grit and hard work that that it takes to get to, you know, where you are today. Um, so that's a great lesson for sure. All right. Any final words? No, just that I appreciate this and everything like that. I'm 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 late for uh, I'm I'm doing <laughs> I'm a uh, I coach my uh, I coach my daughter's ten year old soccer team. Uh, the uh, we're the uh, the Cheshire under ten uh, girls soccer club, and so uh, me and another guy um, we coach, and so I'm late for uh, I gotta I gotta go pick up my daughters and take them to practice. So all right, man. Um, so uh, important stuff there. Well, listen, you've been super generous. Thank you so much. It's great to connect with you again. I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks so much. You bet, Derek. Thanks so much. Take care and good luck. 
And there we have it. That's my conversation with Matthew Berry. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'd like to wish him the best of luck wherever he lands. And if you'd like to keep up with all things Matthew Berry, you can follow him at Matthew Berry TMR on Twitter. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more, visit mason23.com or send an email to hello at mason23.com. That's it for this one. Until the next time, we'll see ya. Take care.